Kings chapter number 18. First Kings chapter number 18, and we've been looking at a series the past two weeks uh, entitled A Nation in Need. <clears throat> we've been looking at the last couple of weeks how the church has a tremendous opportunity to impact our country and to turn the direction of our country to one that would once again honor God. In 1 Kings chapter number 18, we see an account of a nation just like ours who found itself greatly in need of God's hand and God's touch and God's power. We see how God used one of his men, Elijah, one of his representatives to help point this nation in the direction again that it needed to go. And they would see not only the fire of God fall from heaven, but after the fire of God would fall, there would be the rain from heaven and God would give them what they needed to be restored to their former glory. Now, this morning, we're going to look at something very important. We're going to pick up in verse number 30, and if you want to go ahead and stand, if you can stand this morning in honor of the reading of God's Word, we'll read down to about verse number 35 or verse number 36. Last week, we read how God called Elijah to come out of his hiding place, to go and to stand before King Ahab, and if you'll look across the page to verse number 17... The Bible says it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Verse 18, you see the boldness of Elijah. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Elijah goes on to tell Ahab, he says, here's what we're going to do. He says, since Israel cannot decide who's going to be God, we're going to have a contest of sorts. And you bring all of the false prophets to Mount Carmel, and I will meet there at Mount Carmel and bring all of the nation of Israel together, and we'll have a contest to see whose God is whose. He goes on to tell them that they'll take a bullock, and he'll take a bullock, and they'll sacrifice it, and they're going to pray that God would send fire, and the God that answers with fire will be the true God. We pick up in verse number 30 where the prophets of Baal have tried their best but could not call down fire. The Bible says in verse 30, Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob unto whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be thy name. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about, about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he says, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he says, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. Verse 36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant, that I have done all these things at thy word. Now watch the next two verses. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell. And consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the message, Lord, that you have undoubtedly sent. Lord, thank you, Lord, for etching it upon our heart, Lord, that we'll know this morning exactly what you'd have us to preach. Now, Father, I just want to do your will today, the way that you would have it done. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd work in every heart that's here. You knew who would be here. You knew the needs that would be here. You knew the lost that would be here and the saved, Lord, that have, uh, Lord, kind of grown cold. 
for the sake of our country, Lord, our nation that is in need, I pray that, Father, you would speak to us today, and I pray we would be obedient to, Lord, what you send our way. Bless the invitation here in just a few minutes, Lord. I pray we would all leave here having done your will in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let's do a quick review. The first week we looked at this, we looked at where Elijah said over in verse 21, how long halt ye between two opinions? The first message in this series of messages was entitled, A Crossroads of Faith. And now the nation of Israel had an identity crisis, figuring out who they were and which God was going to be God. And two weeks ago, we preached a message about how Elijah would call them to decide whether or not God was going to be God. I believe this morning, listen, if the church is going to be the influence in the United States of America today that, that God's calling us to be, we have to make the decision on who's going to be God. Is God going to be God or is, is Baal going to be God? And we'll prove that by verse 21. He says, then follow him. The one that we follow is ultimately who we will prove is God of our life. Last week we looked at a message where the Bible says in chapter 18 and verse number 1 and 2 that God called Elijah to go. God says, I want to help this nation, and I want to reach this nation, and I want to turn this nation back to me, but I need a representative. I need someone who's willing to go and to stand before the nation and call them back to me. And we looked last week where he called them to come out of hiding. He called Elijah to come out of the place where he was protected and to go stand before King Ahab. And that brings us this morning to exactly what Elijah was going to have to do. Now Elijah actually has to go to work. We see in verse 18, he stands before Ahab and tells him that the reason that the nation is in trouble is because they have turned their back on God. Elijah now steps up to the plate on behalf of God to work a Herculean effort in order that he might turn this nation back to God. Between verse 30 and verse number 35, we see all that Elijah was willing to do in order to point this nation to the God, the one, the true living God. Now here's what's interesting. We see in verse number 36 and verse number 37 that he prayed. I don't believe this morning there's a problem in America praying for revival. Matter of fact, I think we've probably got that down pat very well, praying for revival. We're asking God for revival, and we spend time at the altar, and we're asking God to move in America again. And look, I believe that's important. But here's what's interesting. I did a little word count the other night. Now, look, don't take the service and correct me if I'm wrong, okay? Do it when you get home. But I counted the words of his prayer, and there's only 37 words in his prayer. 37 words of his prayer. But what's interesting, when you read verse 30 through verse number 37, you'll find there was 236 words of preparation before he ever prayed. Now understand this this morning. I don't believe we have a problem praying for revival. I don't think we have a problem praying that God would bless our country. Look, if you have children, it ought to be something you pray for every day. Because they're going to grow up in this world long after you're gone, and who knows what it's going to look like when you're gone. I mean, look, I'm only 39 years old. 39 young, vibrant years old. And this world's changed in my lifetime. I can say that in the last 10 years, it's changed exponentially. It's getting rapidly worse. Now, what is the world going to look like? What is America going to look like, the nation that our children inherit when they're 39 and 40 years old? You will not recognize it. It'll be a socialist nation, an atheistic nation that's turned its back on God. You ought to be praying for revival. But notice the prayer was not the bulk of why God sent the fire. 
37 words of prayer, but over 236 words of preparation. I believe Elijah believed what William Carey believed and vice versa, that in order to expect great things for God, you had to attempt great things for God. Elijah was not just going to sit by and pray and ask God to send revival. Elijah was willing to do some preparations in order for revival to come. I believe this morning we desire the effects of revival. I don't, look, I don't think there's a person here today who doesn't desire that. Man, we want to see God work. We want to see God turn this nation around. We want to see God use this nation to reach the rest of the world like we used to. I mean, as Ronald Reagan said, we used to be the city on the hill. We should be the lighthouse that spread the light all over the world. And oh, how I would love to see that again. I'd love to see a day like I watched on the Andy Griffith show where you'd have to lock your doors all the time and didn't have to lock your windows all the time. Wouldn't that be neat? Look, I've got three locks on every door in my house, and I check them every night before I go to bed. they some weirdos in this world. I've done this ever since I got married. You call me weird, I just call it safe. I do it at our house. It's called a booger check. Every night. Every night. Every house, every camper we've ever lived in. The neat thing about living in a camper is it doesn't take long to do a booger check. You just kind of stand in a circle. No boogers. You know, it was safe. And the house we live in now is huge. I, I go from one end to the other. I check every closet, every door, just trying to be safe. Why? It's a rough world we live in. Crazy folks will shoot you in the face for $20 to buy some dope. Oh, how we need revival. I wish God would send revival. But we got to be willing to do more than just pray about revival. Don't go home and say, my preacher said we don't have to pray for revival anymore. No, I think we ought to pray 37 words and prepare 236. I believe the reason that God sent revival in chapter 18 is all of the preparation and God honored the preparation that Elijah went through. Now, here's what's neat this morning. You'll look down and look at verse 36 and verse 37. You're going to see something. Through the efforts of Elijah, through all of this work, and I'm going to tell you, between verse 30 and verse 36, Elijah went through a lot of work. I mean, a lot of work, a lot of effort, but God honored his effort. And watch what the Bible says. Verse 36, toward the end of the verse, it says this. The Bible says, let it be known this day. Elijah says, I did all of these things, all of this work, all of this effort, so that the nation would know. Elijah says, I was willing to do all of the things we just read about in verse 30, all the way down through verse 36. I was willing to do all of that. Why? So that it would let it be known. Because my nation needs to know, and keep reading, there's three things that Elijah proved here. He says, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. That I am thy servant, and I have done all of these things at thy word. The efforts of Elijah proved three things. Now, I'm not giving you the three points ahead of time. You're thinking, yes, he's given us the points ahead of time. No, there's actually six points, and I'm going to give you three ahead of time. That way you're not worried you're going to get out late, okay? Notice what happened. Because of the efforts of Elijah, he proved that God was God in Israel. He proved that he was his servant. And he proved that God's word was true through his efforts. Now this morning, I believe the efforts of Elijah in proving those three things turned a nation in need around. So notice at the end of verse 36, he said, I have done all of these things. 
I've done all of these things to prove those three things. So as I read that, you know, the Lord kind of stirred my heart for I need to see exactly the things he did. Because the things that he did proved to a nation those three very important things this morning. And we know that it worked because verse 38 says this. Then the fire of the Lord fell. I don't know about you, but I want to do the things that Elijah did. So that the fire of God would fall in America again. And I believe, listen close, the country that our children inherit will be the evidence of our efforts. The country that our children inherit when we're gone will be evidence of our efforts that should begin in in your heart and your life today. So this morning, the third message in, in this series is the evidence of our efforts. So let's look at what Elijah said in verse 36. Let's look at these things, and there's three that I believe we need to do in order to prove these things to our nation. Look, if you will, to verse 30. The Bible says, And Elijah said unto all the people, Now, this is after Baal's guys have had their shot. I'm going to be honest. When I get to heaven, if I can still think about it, I don't know if I'm going to think the way that I think now when I get to heaven. I want God to kind of show me a video of what that was like because that had to be a chaotic scene. These bunch of false prophets jumping up and down on the altar, cutting themselves. I mean, I just would like to see that. Maybe I won't be as carnal when I get to heaven and won't want to see that. I don't know, but I'd love to see what that was like. Elijah's sitting back, and I'm just being honest, you read your Bible, it almost sounds like he's talking smack to them. (laughs) Verse 27, it says, and it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. Where's he at, boys? Where's he at? Jumping up and down. I mean, I think I've seen some church services on TBN like that. I'm not sure, but that may be what they were doing back then. Verse 30, Elijah says unto all the people, come near unto me. He says, it's my turn. It's my turn. And all the people came near unto him. But watch one of the things. He said in verse 36, I did all of these things. Look at the first thing that he did in verse 30. The Bible says he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. I think the first thing this morning that he did that we need to do, number one, he repaired what was neglected. He repaired what was neglected. Now, remember the three things. I took, look, I, I worked really hard last night to get these points over. You wouldn't forget about those three things. Now, watch how they work together. Elijah says, I did all these things. Why? To prove who God is. I did all of these things to prove who I am. And I did all of these things to prove that God's word still works. What did he do? He repaired what was neglected. Can I tell you this morning, you're not going to get this. You're not going to understand if you don't realize the significance of the altar. The altar of God on Mount Carmel was broken down. It had been neglected. It had not been used in a while. Listen, repairing the altar, this is not just a preliminary thing that Elijah did. This was a priority, okay? This wasn't just some of the lower names on the card, the fight card, in order to lead up to the main event. Repairing the altar of God was a priority. If he didn't repair the the altar of God, understand, God would not have honored Elijah's sacrifice. That abandoned and neglected altar was really just an object lesson of Israel's relationship with their God. You see, the condition of the altar will always show us the condition of our relationship with God. You see, what the altar does is the altar shows priority and preeminence. Don't forget that. 
You see, your worship to God and where your worship to God falls in your life is a reflection of your relationship with God. And I'm going to tell you this morning that America hasn't seen the rainfall and the fire of God's fall in a long time. It's because we've neglected the altar of God. God no longer has priority and preeminence in our life. Elijah says the first thing we've got to do is repair this altar. You go all the way back to Genesis and just start sometime looking at all the times you see the word altar. It's really neat. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20. The Bible says that when Noah came out of the ark, God says, turn the animals loose. Don't you know that, that Noah was excited to be obedient to that? I mean, you know, they didn't have blade plug-ins on the ark. They didn't have Febreze and all that other stuff. It probably stunk, you know. And God says, Noah, you let those animals out of here. And Noah says, yes, sir. Turn them loose. But if you'll read in Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 20, as soon as Noah let all the animals out, the Bible says he built an altar unto the Lord. He built an altar unto the Lord. Now, I want you to take that small snippet of a sentence. He built an altar. He showed his priority. Unto the Lord, he showed his preeminence. He says, God's a priority in my life. And before I do anything else, I'm going to get out of this boat and I'm going to build an altar unto my God. Noah was showing that God was priority and had preeminence in his life. Now, folks, if we want God to bless this country again, we've got to get to the place where we repair the altar of God that's broken down. What does that mean? It means God's got to have the priority and preeminence in our life again. I'm going to tell you, even in churches that I've been in all across this country, it's amazing that in a church, God doesn't always have priority and preeminence. The desires of the people, the needs of the people, the needs of the culture around them has more priority and preeminence than God does. And we wonder why God's not blessing America again. Can I give you a little side note to this real quick? Okay, this is a freebie. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20, the Bible says he came out of the ark and he built an altar to the Lord. One chapter later, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20, the Bible says he planted a vineyard. It's kind of amazing. He didn't go straight to work. He built an altar unto the Lord. And I got to thinking last night, I wonder if God would bless more of our efforts if we built the altar before we planted the vineyard. America's so wrapped up today in planting the vineyard, we've forgotten to take time to build the altar. Look, you can do it in your own life. You can get so busy with the things of life, you can neglect God and the priority and preeminence of your life, and then God's not going to bless your vineyard. See, a lot of folks, their vineyards are drying up. In America, our vineyards are drying up. Why? Because we are planting the vineyard before we built the altar. God says, I'm not going to send the rain. You can get out of the ark and plant plant the vineyard all you want, but until you build that altar, give me back my priority and my preeminence, I'm not going to bless it. I think it's what Matthew 6, 33 is talking about, don't you? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What is he doing? What is he doing? He's telling us, I must have priority and preeminence in your life. And if you want me to send the fire and you want me to send the rain, you've got to repair the altar that's broken down. God says, I don't have the rightful place in your life that I should. Elijah says, in order to have the fire of God fall, we've got to do some things. The first thing he did was the Bible says he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. I believe this morning that neglected altar shows us that we've forgotten our focus. We've forgotten our focus. be honest with you, I'll tell on myself for a minute. Uh, My wife never tells on me, so I have to tell on myself, you know. But Richard, she thinks I'm Superman. She really does. You know, I wear the shirt when I get home. But uh, sometimes at night, boy, we'll be sitting there on the couch and we're tired. 
been a long day up here at school, or a long day up here at the office, long day or whatever it is, just a long day doing nothing sometimes, you know. Preachers, we only work one day a week, so sometimes, you know, you just get tired of doing nothing, and um, we'll be sitting there, and next thing I know, I, my wife has fallen to deep prayer on the couch, praying for the next day. She speaks in tongues when she prays. It's, I don't know what she's doing, but she's, she's I don't know, you know. I'm just picking, all right? Some of you are going to catch me after the service. What? Look over there at my daughter. She's drooling up a storm on the couch. She's gone too. I'm starting to lose it myself. All of a sudden, I realize we hadn't prayed. We hadn't had our devotion. We hadn't had to spend time in the Bible together. Last minute, I'll throw it in there. Wake up! Wake up! My wife, what is it? I said, we got to pray. Oh, what a sad picture of devotion. <laughs> I'm not talking about my wife, okay? I'm talking about our home. <laughs> Man, I'll pay for that one later. You know it. <laughs> I need to go home and lunch with somebody, okay? <laughs> what a sad picture. Three drowsy people sitting on a couch trying to utter the words of a prayer. I don't know that that shows God's priority or preeminence in our home. But folks, I'll tell you, a lot of times that's a picture of our worship to God. We've gotten to a place where God is down the list somewhere. If our boss needs it, we're there, Johnny, on the spot. We are early and we stay late. Because that has priority and preeminence in our life. And yet we pray, pray for revival. God says, I hear those 36 words, but I want to see those 236 words of preparation in order to have revival. Folks, look, I was speaking with some of our folks last night. Well, what, a, what a blessing it is to fellowship with God's people and I love people just to be honest. I just like being around genuine people. So often we come to the house of God and we act like nothing's wrong. But folks, when we leave this place, we will prove what our priority is. Yes. Our life, our home, listen, our habits, our hobbies, they are going to prove what has priority and preeminence of our life. And I think if we follow us around long enough, we'd find the altar of God's broken down. I read a story the other day, a beautiful story about a newlywed couple got married right before Christmas and went to their new home and set up the house and the Christmas tree and uh, went to spend Christmas with her parents several states away. While they were gone, they had the horrific phone call that Christmas tree lights had, 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 had short-circuited and the house had burned down. Had been married but a week and now they find out that several states away their home had burned down and they decide to go ahead and spend Christmas time with their family and then go back and clean up the mess later and several days later they pulled up to the house. All that was left was a, just ashes where their little home once stood. What happened next was amazing when they parked the car, the wife jumps out, the husband jumps out and they immediately run out to the square of ashes that were left where their home used to be. The husband runs to one area of the house and begins digging through the ashes. The wife runs to one area of the house, begins digging through the ashes. All of a sudden, she picks up a book and begins to cradle the book in her arm. She looks over at the husband, and the husband holds up a box, and he's so excited, and they meet at the middle, and only to realize that what she had dug through the ashes for was a scrapbook with the pictures of their first year together, the first times that they had spent together. When she looked over in his arms, in his arms there was a shoebox, and in that shoebox was the charred remains of all the love letters that she had sent him during the time that they were dating. And they sit there and looked into each other's eyes, realizing in that moment by what they had taken the time to dig out of those ashes that each other was a priority and had preeminence in their life. 
know what the word preeminence means? It means above all others. When they went digging through the ashes, they weren't looking for the gold, and they weren't looking for the guns, and they weren't looking for the priceless china. What they were digging for was what meant the most to them. You see, they proved that each other was a priority to each other. Now understand, folks, what we dig for in this life and in this world of ashes will prove what our priority is, what our preeminence is. So many of us are digging for gold. We're digging for that promotion. We're digging for that title, and we're digging for that preeminence in life that we might be better than someone else. But understand this. Until God has priority and preeminence in America, again, understand God's fire will not fall. And you can pray for revival all you want, but in order for us to have revival, there's some preparation. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at verse 21 real quickly. The Bible says, Elijah came unto all the people and says, how long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. He tried to talk some sense into them. All right, you ever do that with your kids? <laughs> Amen. Some of you smile. You're acting like you have perfect kids. You're like, no, it never happened. Amen. They look, they're just as flawed as you are. They carry your DNA around. That's why they are the way they are. They're your kid. <laughs> they're you. Elijah's looking at these people and he says, hey, look, if God's God, follow him. But he couldn't talk them into it. So watch what he says in verse 22. And said, Elijah, unto the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them, therefore, give us two bullocks. Here's what he's saying. He didn't do very good talking to them, so he says, here, I'll prove it to you. Now, folks, I believe the church has gotten hoarse trying to talk the world into believing our God. I think we ought to follow Elijah's uh, advice here and Elijah's example, and why don't we just go out and prove to them who our God is? Amen. Why don't we go out and prove who we are? Instead of the bumper stickers and all the bracelets, listen, I don't have a problem with any of that. But instead of trying to talk them into believing what we believe, why don't we prove it by repairing what's neglected? Elijah said in verse 36, I did all of these things to prove to them who God was. I did all of these things to prove who I was. I did all of these things to prove who God said, or God's word says it is. Something interesting you'll notice, the Bible says that when the fire of God fell, verse 39 the people says, the Lord, he is God, the God, the Lord, he is the God. Elijah didn't have to say a word after that. When the fire of God falls and they see God work, then you don't have to talk them into it. They understand it on their own why you've proved it to them. Real quickly, if you're going to prove who God is, God's going to have to have priority and preeminence in your life. If you want to prove to the world you are who you say you are, quit arguing with them. Listen, quit trying to argue people into heaven. Why don't you just prove it by giving God the preeminence and priority of your life? You will prove more to them by showing them that than trying to talk them into heaven. I meant to show you. I had the picture up here today, but I ran late. and to get the picture up to show you. My mom's dear mother, uh, the missionary I tell you about oftentimes, uh, who contracted a disease on the mission field and died at 52 years old. I don't like to use the word died. I like to use the word went to heaven. Amen. Because she's alive as now as she's ever been before. And uh, if, you, if you ever go to the metropolis of Carson... You know, before you get to the skyscrapers and, and the, the, all the, the big buildings that are there, on the right, there's a small little cemetery on the right side of Highway 42 if you're coming from east to west. And that cemetery is, is where my grandmother is buried. And you go up to the, to the, the side road. She's buried up there near the fence there near the road. And read the back of her tombstone. It'll challenge you. The back of her tombstone says this, Christian, wife, mother, missionary. 
Can I tell you, she did not leave those words for us to put on her tombstone. They just put on the tombstone what they knew and what she proved. I wonder what they're going to put on your tombstone. What are you proving? What is a priority in your life? Christian, wife, mother, missionary. On her tombstone was how she lived. She proved it with her life. She didn't have to leave all of these words. They just wrote that about her because that's what she proved with her life. Number one, if we're going to turn this nation around, we're going to have to repair what is neglected. I believe this morning our nation is not convinced because we're not convinced. So when I'm convinced God is God, do your priorities prove that? Because ultimately our priorities will prove whether God has a preeminence or not. The second thing, real quickly, look back up, if you will, to verse number 31. The Bible says Elijah took 12 stones according to the number. You know, I believe every, every word in the Bible is supposed to be there. And so those words, according to the number, are supposed to be there. Of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. Watch verse 32. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. So here's what, here's what he did. Number one, look, he repaired what was neglected. He says, look, we got to fix what's wrong before we try to pray and ask God to do something right and to make things right. But the second thing that he did was he went and rebuilt this altar and prepared it for the sacrifice. Now, what's interesting is all of the detail that God gives here. You ever read through like, uh, you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and you get over the, you know, some of the begats in the New Testament, and you're like, it's just like they were filling in time. No, all of that's supposed to be there. All of this detail is supposed to be here. Why? Look, Elijah wasn't just OCD. We got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this. No, he's doing everything for a reason. Why? He knew what God required. He knew in order to make this sacrifice that he had to do it exactly the way that God wanted it to be. Number two, the second thing we see that Elijah did was he prepared what was accepted. He prepared what was accepted. Now, I'll give you another freebie real quick. Notice before he prepared, he repaired. Isn't that kind of cool? Before he tried to skip on to the part where God's fire falls, he knew there had to be some repairs made. And then after repairs were made, then he started to preparing. And he's doing it exactly the way that God commanded. Hold your place right there. Flip back to Leviticus real quickly, okay? Real quickly. Some of you, I haven't earned your trust yet, okay? So I'm not going to quote it for you. I want to read it so you'll know that I'm being honest with you. Leviticus chapter 1. That's the third book in the, New, in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. Hold your place in 1 Kings and go back to Leviticus chapter 1. We read this the other night when we preached about peace and the peace offering. Leviticus chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 3, God says, in, if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. Look at verse 5. And he shall kill the what? Bullock. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that not what Elijah said? Elijah says in verse number 23, let them therefore give us two bullocks. Keep reading. The Bible says, and he shall kill the bullock. If you look down to verse number six, he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Look down, if you will, to verse number 33, back in 1 Kings 18. He put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces. What is Elijah doing? He says, in order for God to honor this sacrifice, I must do it in the way that's acceptable unto him. 
No, folks, if we want God to send revival to America again, number one, we've got to repair what's neglected. The altar of God, the priority and preeminence of God in our life and our home and our church has got to be repaired. Then after we've repaired that, we must prepare what God accepts. We sing the song a lot, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Lord, prepare me. Folks, can I tell you tonight or this morning, in order for God to work in this place, we've got to be prepared according to what he says is acceptable. Elijah's doing exactly the way that God told him to. I was thinking last night, several years ago, uh, my, my brother married into an aviation family. How that happened, I do not know. Uh, I guess it was God, you know? And uh, so I got to fly a lot uh, with my brother's family, his, his, his in-laws. I've flown in, uh, uh, what are they called, experimental fighter jet kind of things. I've flown in helicopters. I've flown in aerobatic teams and all of that. And I remember I wanted to go in a helicopter with them. I never flown in a helicopter, so I wanted to go do that. And um, so we get in the helicopter. I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and his father-in-law is sitting in the, the driver's seat. And before he fired the engine up, he pulls this little card out from the bottom of the seat. And this little card has a, a one, two, three on it of what to do. And he straps it to his leg. You know, and I'm just, I'm appreciating the free ride, you know, and all that. But I'm kind of thinking, shouldn't you have these instructions down pat by now? Look, it's one thing to get in a car with somebody and go for a ride with somebody. Because, you know, if there's a problem, you can always pull over. I don't know if you know this, but in a helicopter, you can't just pull over. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm just kind of trying to be respectful of the man. Notice he's reading the instructions. And I'm thinking to myself, it's kind of late for that, ain't it? You know, I mean, shouldn't you kind of have an idea of what you're supposed to do? Number one, turn the key on. I mean, hey, 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 I think I can fly that way. You know, it's like color by number. I can figure that out. And here's what he said. I asked him, I says, um, what you doing? I'm just being straight up honest with you. He says, I'm going through my checklist. I says, okay, is, uh, is, uh, is something wrong? He says, no, 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 no. He says, but I can't afford to forget something. I said, thank you. I appreciate that very much. We went up, we flew around, a few nerve-wracking moments, and we came back down. And after I get to thinking about that, I'm so thankful that he didn't fudge on any of the checklist. I was so thankful that he was careful to follow it list by list, line by line, to make sure he got all of it right. Why? Because I kind of like living. Don't you? I love living. Look, some of you folks, I'm not sure about. Wake up. It's all right. It's just now 12, and we're on point number two. Okay? You don't have to look at your watch. Some of you are trying to secretly look at your watch without me knowing it. <laughs> it's 12 straight up even, all right? Let you know. There was no room for error. He knows how to fly. He flew for Delta for 20-something years, flew all over the world. He flies for Aeroshell avi- uh, aerobatic team. He knows how to fly. But up in the air, there's no room for error. He said, I've got to get this right. There's, matter of fact, when we got taken out, you remember when we took off together? He reports, I don't know who he's talking to, but he's talking to somebody. And he says, this is, this is uh, Jimmy Fordham taking off from 1247 Airport with four souls. <laughs> like, did you have to put it that way? <laughs> Can't you say, hey, this is Jimmy. 
Take it off. Got four people on board. Be back in a minute. No, we got four souls on board. Man alive, made me nervous. But I'm telling you, I'm so thankful he took the time to follow the instructions. Every one of it. No matter how much he knew about it, no matter how much experience he had, look, the margin of error was too great and too small, if you will, in order to mess up. Now understand this this morning. If we want God to work in America again, we've got to go line by line obedience to what God's commanded. Elijah says if God's fire is going to fall, God's fire is only going to fall upon an altar that's done God's way. I'm afraid in America today we're building a lot of funky looking altars that don't look anything like what God demanded and we're scratching our head wondering why the fire of God hadn't fallen because we're trying it our way other than what God said. Elijah says, look, in order to prove that God is God, that I represent God, and that God's word still works, here's what we're going to do. We're going to prepare what God accepts. We're going to do it his way. Give an example real quick. Remember when Jonah was on the ship. And oh, the storm came up, and man, it was a bad situation. The ship's being tossed up and down, back and forth, and the the mariners thought they were going to lose their life. Can I tell you the reason for all of the trouble? God wanted Jonah. God wanted Jonah. The Bible says that when all of a sudden the mariners gave God what he wanted, the storm ceased. I think we'd see a lot of our storms go away if we just give God what he wanted. And then all of a sudden, Jonah gets swallowed by a whale. Talking about a rough night. Rough three nights. I mean, no flashlights. You know we see on the movie, you know, Pinocchio, he's walking around in there, and he's fishing in there, if only. No, it stunk. It was rough. Jonah was despair. thought he was going to die. Look, I'm going to read it for you. Some of you don't believe me. I feel like, don't feel like you trust me. Let me read it for you real quick, okay? Chapter 2, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord and his God out of the fish's belly. And says, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. Jonah says, it's bad in here. Can I tell you why it was bad? Jonah was not giving God what he wanted. God says, I can make all of this go away. Just give me what I want. He goes on down. Verse number four. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Verse five. The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depths closed me round about. I went to the bottoms of the mountains. Verse six. Verse 7, when my soul fainted within, within me, I remembered the Lord. Finally, it got bad enough. Jonah says, I'm going to give God what he wants. Listen close. My prayer came in unto thee, into thy holy temple. They did observe lying vanities, forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah. God says, I'm just waiting for you to give me what I wanted. Finally, Jonah decided, I'm going to do things God's way, and the whale barfed him up on the beach. Now, some of you, you're living in the whale right now. Some of you are living in a storm-tossed ship right now. Why? Because you're not willing to give God what he wants. Elijah said, let's give God what he wants so we can get what God wants us to have. He prepared what God accepted. I think if we were to ask Cain this morning, if we could interview Cain this morning, ask Cain, Cain, is God serious about what he wants? Cain would say, you better believe he is. What did did Cain do? Well, God says, I want you to offer a lamb pointing to Christ. Cain says, I'm just going to do things my way and offer him some turnips or some squash, some kind of vegetables. God says, Cain, that's not what I want. Finally, God tells Cain in the book of Genesis, he says, if thou doest well, just do what I want, Cain. He says, won't you be accepted? 
I'll accept that. Just do what I told you to do, and you'll be accepted. Folks, can I tell you this morning, I believe America could be accepted of God again if we just prepared what he accepted. Just do what God says. Elijah's going list by list exactly what the Lord wants. Why? Because Elijah wants to point the nation back to the Lord. I believe for too long, I'm going to give you the last thing in just a second. I believe for too long, we've lived by what's accepted rather than what's acceptable unto God. In the church, look, there's a lot of things that we've accepted now. But it doesn't mean it's acceptable unto God. Romans chapter 12 tells us pretty clear, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Watch this. God's telling you how to live your life. Have people ask me that. Preacher, are you telling me how to live my life? No, God is. And I just work for him. But don't get mad at me. All right? So I tell folks all the time. After church, they'll say, man, that was a great message. I'll say, thank the Lord. I say, that was a horrible message. I say, tell the Lord. It's like a Domino's delivery man. I just deliver it. I don't cook it, okay? So if it's good, tell the one who cooked it. If you don't like it, talk to him about it. I'm just the driver, all right? Now, folks, listen to me. He says in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, here it comes, here's the wind up, and acceptable unto God acceptable. God says, I want what I want, and if you want me to bless you, give me what I want. Verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may, here it comes again, prove. God says, prove what's acceptable. By the way, when you were saved, you were bought with a price. So you don't have the rule book anymore. God does. And God says, here's how I want you to live. If we're prepared, what what I accept and God says, I'll send the rain, and I'll, I'll send the fire. Now, real quickly, can I tell you, Satan is really good at talking you out of what God's talked you into. Have you ever sat there in a church pew or a chair, and God talked you into something? And man, you're like, as soon as that pianist begins to play, I'm heading down there. And man, I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to get saved. I'm going to tell the preacher I need to get baptized. I'm going to join the church. I'm going to quit this. I'm going to quit that. And before the end of the service... The devil's done talked you out of what God talked you into. Folks, listen to me. Some of you right now, you probably teetered on something. And you're thinking about it, and you want to give God what he's asking for, but if you're not careful, before the service is over, the devil will talk you out of what God's talked you into. And you're going to miss out on the rain. You're going to miss out on the blessings. You're going to miss out on the revival that God wanted. Can I ask you real quickly, what does God want from you today? What does God want from you today? I have no clue. Can I tell you something? I'm fixing to have a lot of you breathe easy. God doesn't tell the preacher all of the members' dirty secrets. You do that good enough on Facebook, you know? He doesn't have to. <laughs> oh, it's okay, Brother Zach. It's okay. Listen to me. God doesn't tell me. I don't need to know, and I don't want to know. I told a guy a while back, I met this guy for the first time, and uh, we were looking at some property. And in Louisiana, and we're walking around the property. Next thing you know, this guy's confessing his life. I says, man, I'm not a priest. I don't want to know that. I don't need to know that. And I was feeling comfortable walking with you out here in the woods, and now you kind of scared me a little bit. Now you find all this stuff about people. I don't need to know, and I don't want to know, but God knows. And God's going to let you know. The question is, are you going to be willing to give God what he asks for? He said, that's just kind of dumb. Elijah's building the altar, building that of stones. And he's cutting the sacrifice up. He put the wood in order according to the number. Why is he doing all that? Because that's what God wanted. He says, how can I ask for God to send fire if I don't give God what he wants? So number one, he repaired what was neglected. Number two, he prepared what was accepted of God. And then here's the best part. If you'll notice at the end of verse 32, 
The end of verse 32, the Bible says he did something a little bit out of the ordinary. The Bible says that he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. He digs a ditch around it, if you will. And the Bible says in verse number 33, he says, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Verse 34, do it the second time. They did it the second time. Do it the third time. They did it the third time. Verse 35, and the water ran ran about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. Now, I don't know if you know this, but wet stuff doesn't burn very well. You know, what? I, look, I'm going to be honest. If I was there with Elijah, I'd be like, what are you doing? We're already outnumbered. 900 to 1. And now you're going to wet the sacrifice down? Here's what he was doing. Number one, he was repairing what was neglected. Number two, he was preparing what was accepted. But the stakes were too high to leave it at good enough. The stakes were too high. He says, we're talking about a nation here. We're talking about turning a nation back to the Lord. There can be no room for error. So here's what he did. For the sake of this nation, he took an extraordinary step. Not only am I going to put it in order and pray to God, but I'm going to wet it down. Number three, he dared with the unexpected. He dared with the unexpected. Now, what is he trying to prove? Who God is, who he is, and that God's word works. He says, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to do something totally unexpected to prove who God is, who we are, and his word works. Let me give you this real quick. You know, the reality of the matter is all God had to do was show up and he would beat Baal because Baal was a no-show. All God had to do was flick a, a hot coal down from heaven on top of the burnt sacrifice and he would have been up better than Baal. The truth of the matter is God could have gotten by with just the way things were. But here's what we need to see. Rather than be content with staying a step ahead of Baal, God sought to set himself apart from Baal. Now let that sink in just for a moment, please. Rather than God just get a little bit better than Baal, he says, I want to put as much distance between me and Baal as possible. And so God ordered Elijah, notice in verse 36, I have done all these things at thy word. God told him to do this. God says, I'm fixing to set myself apart from him with a great difference. Now, the problem I believe this morning with the church is this. We are satisfied with there being a little contrast between us and the world. All right? You can contrast, I'm not a bad person. I don't know how many people have told me I'm not a bad person. They're probably telling the truth. But God says, I don't want just a little bit of contrast. I want you to be convincing. That's what he's doing here. I mean, God could have gotten by with much less, but he says, I'm trying to change a nation. Let's prove it to them. I believe this morning our nation is in need. And on behalf of our nation, we ought to be willing to remove all doubt. When you soak a sacrifice down with barrels and barrels of water, the Bible says the fire fell, burn up the sacrifice, burn up the altar, burn up the rocks, and burn up all of the water. That's what I call convincing. Um, for the, listen, for the sake of this nation, we ought to be willing to live a life that doesn't just contrast that we're different than Baal, but be convincing that we're way different than Baal. Now, this is important, folks. The truth of the matter is we're not convincing anyone. We're not. Why? Because the United States of America this morning is evidence of our effort. We're putting forth very little effort to differentiate ourselves from the Baal folks, and we're not convincing anybody. Remember when I was a kid, 
there used to be vacuum salesmen. You remember those? I haven't had one in my house in a while. I kind of looked forward to that as a kid, having a vacuum salesman come by. We got it in here. My wife will give you the address after the service. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's Brother Brent's house. We, we stay with him uh, down the road. The vacuum salesman came to our house one time. We lived in Carson. And I remember he brought dirt with him, okay? Because there wasn't no dirt in my mama's house. She's sitting here this morning, amen? And uh, so he brought his own dirt, and he got my mom to get out her vacuum cleaner, okay? And he threw this dirt on the floor. And I'm like, oh, you're fixing to die right here. He said, I want you to take your vacuum, and I want you to vacuum it up. So mom pulls out her vacuum, and it cleaned it up. And then he took some more dirt out, and he threw it on the floor again. I'm like, ooh, you know, grace, mercy can run out. He pulled out his vacuum, and man, it never sucked the carpet off the floor. So he contrasted that, hey, his vacuum, you know, like a V8 in it. It was huge. His vacuum was better than our vacuum. But here's the problem. It wasn't $2,000 better than our vacuum. Okay? There was a contrast but it wasn't enough contrast to convince mom and dad to shell out $2,000 or whatever it was for the vacuum cleaner. Now, folks, look, I believe every person in here this morning that names the name of Christ, there's probably enough contrast that the world knows you're not a bad person. You're not one of Baal's guys. But here's the problem. There's not enough difference between you to convince them to trade in what they got for what you got. God says, I'm going to be so convincing that they're going to drop bail like a bad habit, which he was, and they're going to choose me. You see, it's not our job to just contrast a little bit different. It's our job to convince them to trade in what they've got for what we've got. This, this summer's camp theme was Marvel. And I preached every morning or every night message out of Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The Bible says they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men. The Bible says they took knowledge they had been with Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible says they saw they were ignorant and unlearned men. But then the Bible says they marveled. There was something so different about them. It made people marvel. And I asked the young people a question I'm going to ask you before we close. How marvelous is your life? How marvelous is your life? Are you just satisfied with staying one step ahead of Baal? I think that's where most of the church is at today. We're not worshiping Baal. We just want to be a little bit better than Baal. That's not enough to convince this world. This world needs what we've got, and we've got to be more convincing. And just look, you say, well, I'm better than Baal. Baal didn't set the bar very high. He didn't even show up. I mean, winning by default ain't saying a whole lot. We ought to seek to be a little bit better than Baal. We ought to seek to be more than just contrast. We ought to be convincing this morning. I remember, remember these kids around here. The kids today, they're smart. They don't fall for the old tricks that we used to play. You know, got your nose thing? Got your nose, you know? These kids grew up with iPads, you know? I mean, it's, you, got, you got to be on your ball uh, for these kids to, uh, to impress them nowadays. And they're used to our old tricks. Can I tell you, the world's gotten used to the church's old tricks. Watch, we, we, take the, we take their music and we put our words to it. Man, look at us. Man, we, we, we're a step ahead. They're like, hey, we see what you're doing. The world sees exactly what we're doing. That, look, there's not that much difference between us and them for them to trade in what they've got for what we're trying to offer them. We're not very convincing. 
What did Elijah do? He dared with the unexpected. Now, real quickly, Elijah says, I want to convince them who God is. I want to prove to them who I am. And I want to prove to them that God's word works. So here's what he did. He repaired what was neglected. He repaired what was neglected. He prepared what was accepted. He said, I'm going to do what God wants. And then he dared to do the unexpected. So let me ask you here this morning, how convincing are you, Christian? How convincing are you? We've got to convince the gainsayer, the Bible says. And you're not going to convince them by being more like them. You're going to convince them by being way different than them. Why would you trade a $5 bill for a $5 bill? Well, it's the same thing. But I'd trade a $5 bill for a $10 bill all day long. My wife's got a pocket full of $5 bills. You got some $10 bills you want to trade? After the service, we'll get together. Why? Because you got something better than what I got. But if we don't have something better than what they got, no wonder they don't want what we have. There's not enough difference between us and them. Elijah says, I've got to be convincing. Our nation is in need this morning. Our nation is in need. And God's people this morning have got to decide, are we willing to prove to them who God is through our priorities and our preeminence? Let's repair that. Are we willing to prove them this morning who I am? Quit trying to talk them into who you are. Why don't you just prove to them who you are? Make God the priority of your life and have preeminence in your life. Start living by just what God says, line by line. Do what God says. Prove to it that way. And then would you be willing to dare to do what's unexpected today? Now, quickly before we close, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, I want to tell you a, a real quick story. When I was a kid, grew up in a good home. Mom and dad are here today and uh, grandparents were missionaries and heard about the gospel a lot. And I remember the first time the Holy Spirit of God convicted my heart that I was lost. I sat there and we talked with the preacher, about nine years old, I think it was in October of 1989. Talked with the preacher and he opened the word of God and he told me that I was a sinner. You know, I didn't like to hear that, but it was the truth. And then he, he told me that I could not save myself with my best efforts, I could not save myself. What a scary thought. There's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sin. The wages of sin is death. But then he told me about the Herculean effort of Christ. Christ says he can't save himself, and I'm going to come down from heaven. I'm going to live 33 sinless years, and I'm going to die on a cross for him. And if he wants to spend eternity in heaven with me, watch this. He can spend eternity on my effort that was good enough. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that you're saved and heaven's your home, I want you to know your best effort's not good enough. Quit trying to work your way there. It's not going to be good enough. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. But Jesus loved every one of us in this room this morning enough that he came down and he worked the effort so that I could be saved this morning and you could spend all eternity in heaven and enjoy the evidence of his effort if you just trust him this morning. Our heads are bowed and eyes are